0: All right I have 12:30 on my clock so we're going to start and I want to welcome everyone I'm BK I am the director of the Pennsylvania Park Maintenance Institute and I want to thank you for joining us today for a park maintenance roundtable. Uh, there's been many topics buzzing around whether it be on the NRPA connect or um, just reading various threads across whatever social media topics you tend to read on but uh our focus today uh is going to be on a bit of planning and development uh some things that we've been trying to put together and uh maybe trying to salvage your year from 2020 and you're thinking about what 2021 is going to look like whether it be a budget whether it be our planning and development um and how can we strategize for unknowns so what can we pull some best practices from folks that are out there in the field but um sometimes it just helps to talk things through and realize that you're experiencing the same challenges that everyone else is uh, so i i wanted to start off by i just got off a webinar with uh pennsylvania DCNR, Department of Conservation National Resources. And they were talking specifically about their newly released State Comprehensive Outdoor Recreation Plan. And uh, if you haven't had a chance to look at it, if you're here in Pennsylvania, uh, the Institute is included in that rec plan this year uh, for the next four years, focusing specifically on sustainable systems. And so when we talk about sustainable systems, it's not necessarily wholly environmental. It's also socially, it's also resources, whether it be infrastructure, or of course the impacts to the environment as well, but it is a a more holistic approach at what is sustainable. And sometimes when we have to think about sustainability, it does break down to financial issues as well. And so what I did today was I've asked Daniel Lawson, who is at Philadelphia Parks and Recreation, and his focus is on sustainability and quality control. And I asked him to share with us some insights into what is he experiencing specifically in a large urban area? Um, and I also kind of touched upon a little bit, see if we can talk about uh, the social equity aspects of that. You know, So looking at how can we be sustainable and how can we make sure that we are uh, providing services to all neighborhoods, all communities and creating what people actually need instead of what we want. So. Without further ado, I'm gonna kind of pass the mic to Daniel.
1: Sure, thanks, BK. Thanks for giving uh, me the opportunity to share what's going on down over here in Philadelphia. Um, so again, my name is Daniel Lawson. I'm the sustainability and quality control manager for Philadelphia Parks and Recreation. So uh, in short, I, I usually just explain to people that my job is to find Um, innovative ways to keep our parks clean and green or make them cleaner and greener uh, specifically from the I'm specifically based out of the operations division but I have you know as I'm sure a lot of you guys experience in your jobs I have a lot of cross collaboration with our program division and to um, to some extent with our our capital projects um, when you know when they're planning things and just thinking of more sustainable ways to plan things Um, but We've got a lot going on here in Philadelphia right now. Is the is the short answer? Um, I think just like a lot of you all, we've we've been hit in different ways by the pandemic right now. Um, a bit, some of the the most tangible impacts I'd say have been with. Um, uh, shortages in workers whether it's because people are sick or or even as you guys might know you know if one person gets sick on a crew an entire crew or even an entire shop could have to quarantine and so it's kept not just our department but a lot of city operating departments in sort of this short this sort of pattern of staying short staffed when you've got people out um, and one of the tough things is that this was a year when a lot of innovations were really supposed to launch and kick off or a, a lot of planning was supposed to was supposed to mature um, and so some of that has been stunted, uh, other, other things, um, we've been able to keep moving, um, just things that, that have to do with, like, working with consultants, you know, that can be done online. I'm going to go down a checklist to give you guys sort of an idea of the picture of, of the work that's on my plate. Um, as you all might know in Philadelphia, litter and dumping is a huge issue, and, you know, it's, it's, weird because I, I always assume every parks and recreation department is spending like 70% of their time just cleaning up trash and litter and dumping and, and you know when I talk with other folks you start to find out it's not it's probably more so with other urban parks but um, you know if you all are more out in the counties or or um, you know further away from the major metropolitan areas um, you know like Philly or, or Pittsburgh you might experience this less but we we've done studies in the last couple of years that show that off the bat, you know, 70% of our operations, you know, our our grounds maintenance crews' time is spent just kind of collecting trash, and some of that is natural. You know, you have you have uh, cans that need to be changed out in parks and at rec centers, but it's also including, um, you know, cleaning up litter at those sites. Uh, and when they're not doing that, they're responding to 311 calls for, um, you know, which are just non-emergency citizen calls for for dumping that happens in in uh, our parks and our rec centers whether that's you know domestic residential household you know kitchen bags or it is uh, whole like low boys or small dump truck worths of um of construction debris from house cleanouts outs or, or renovations and whatnot um and that takes up an, an incredible amount of our time and i um you know i'm constantly collecting pictures of this stuff uh i i did one know just to give you an idea in one of our 10 park districts uh last last month uh we recorded 42 separate what we would consider heavy dumps which means that you actually need machinery to to clean it up um like you need a loader and uh, a dump truck or other open bed hauling vehicle to get the stuff out of there um it amounted to 33 tons of material and that's just what that that crew in that particular district, which is was all in in one section of Fair of West Fairmount Park, um, like that's what they chose to report. So that's what I could glean. There's lots more kind of small stuff that they're just not going to bother to report um, because it you know it's just not worth their time. But uh, it is it is uh, an issue that is plaguing us really hard. And one of the tough things is that you know that domestic dumping I was talking about, like we're residents just kind of walk across the street and put their trash in the park because they miss the trash day or they just don't want to keep it in their house. Um, That occurs at a lot of our neighborhood parks or rec centers, Um, but this heavier dumping where someone drops a whole house on your park, that's hitting us really hard in the, in our watershed parks, you know, our our Fairmount Park, our uh, Ticcone Creek, Pennypack Creek, Cobbs Creek, and um, these are these are areas where, you know, there tends to be less street cameras. There's less residents around who will spot this stuff and say something about it, um, or call it in. Or by the and it's more likely by the time someone finds it, it's going to be our park maintenance folks, um, and and there's gonna and there's gonna be you know little way to actually connect it to you know to who's committing the crime. Um, and, and there's, yeah, so in general, there's just less eyes on those watershed parks, and the crappy thing about that is, as you all can guess, that's, you know, that's hurting our ecosystem. We had someone uh, dump right in a, um, dump right in, like, a, a wetland that is that is preserved, and, and we try to protect um, in West, yeah, in West Fairmount Park uh, the other week. And it was just a whole bunch of sediment debris, contractor waste, and in their mind, they thought like, oh, here's a nice little ditch where we can put this, and no one's going to find this. Um, you know, if we drive into this trail, uh, and you know, there's the ecological damage there. Um, a lot of our, a lot of our watershed parks and areas where this happens, um, just to kind of connect to what uh, Brian was saying, are, are very often uh, adjacent to some of our, our. Poor neighborhoods, you know, with with lower income levels, um, and you know, maybe I, I'd be curious to hear if other folks experience this. Um, and, and I don't know what your you know non-emergency three one one systems look like, but going back to the point of equity, um, I think one issue that we as a big city faces that you know as service providers, whether it's us or our streets and sanitation department or or the water department. Um, one of our priorities is to respond to those 311 non-emergency calls, like "Oh, there's dumping here," "There's a tree down," um, and there have been studies done, mainly through the Zero Waste and Litter Cabinet that we had in the city, um, that have showed patterns where uh, that data isn't always going to reflect what the need is in each com- community. Right? Um, like there, there's huge chances where one community feels more comfortable calling three one one uh you know whether that's that it's more culturally acceptable that uh, it could even be that they've had more success with it like they know when they put that request in um someone's gonna come and clean up that trash it could be it could be that there's a stronger um, you know network of neighbors there who can all get together and say like all right let's all flood the three one one you know um uh, queue with, with the same request and we'll get it done quicker. And then other neighborhoods, while they might experience the same or even greater need, um, they're, you know, we found that there are situations where they're just less likely in certain neighborhoods to actually report. Um, and, that, and that had to do with looking at uh, 311 report data um, and work orders that were filled and comparing it next to on the ground reports of how littered or how dumped um, you know, a neighborhood is. Uh, and so that's an that's just an interesting topic. I'd even be curious to hear how that you know how that plays out in your own towns or if that's something you guys experience. Um so litter and dumping is a huge one. It's a huge one that distracts from from so much other park maintenance there is to do. I always try to tell folks, you know every minute that a, or, or or hour you know that a worker is out there cleaning up dumping or using a loader to put a bunch of um, like lumber and concrete and bricks into a, a truck and then. You know, go and, and tip that at a at a waste facility. That's you know, that's an hour that they're not taking care of our sports fields or or doing any you know natural lands work or um, you know taking out invasives or or you know any number of other things that they could be doing. Um, some other, I think, on on a little bit of uh, brighter news, something some things we have been able to move forward during the pandemic. Um, are all around zero waste. So the city had a zero waste and litter action plan. Unfortunately, the cabinet that was sort of managing that got dissolved um, as, as the city just had to let go of staff. Um, and so it's now kind of on each department to sort of keep with their own goals and keep managing them. Um, we, I'm proud to say that in Parks and Rec, I think we've really tried to, been trying to be one of the departments that leads the charge of zero waste. Um, You know, and a lot of that is something as simple as um, setting up, you know, single stream recycling in our rec centers for the, and trying to do that successfully for the first time in maybe a decade, Uh, but also trying to get creative and think about ways we can reduce other waste. Like we found a significant amount of our trash has to do with meals that go uneaten by kids or like portions of meals. So um, at this point, we've trained all of our rec centers to uh, engage in meal donation. Um, or if they have extra untampered meals or unspoiled meals, they work with a local organization called uh Philly Food Connect that I I think is actually I think they're they're now they just recently got funding and they're active in cities all across the nation. So I would look up Food Connect if any of you all are interested checking this out. It's basically like the Uber or the Lyft of food donation. You just post up like, hey, we have you know 15 turkey sandwiches the kids didn't want, or maybe the kids ate all their food, but we have 30 milk cartons that kids didn't want. Um, or any combination, they'll come or, or you post that up, they claim it, they send a driver out who's like a volunteer driver. Sometimes they're getting a stipend. Um, they'll pick that stuff up in their own car and they'll take it to the nearest um, you know, shelter or kitchen or uh, other service organization uh, in the area that that's need matches up with that type of food. Um, so it's a really great way that we've been able to support the community while also reducing our waste and the amount of you know labor and time that we put into to collecting trash at our sites um some other some other really cool advances that we're making are all around organics and that's and that's something that's where how i think we as parks and rec are able to become so involved in the zero waste game um for those of you all who don't know we we have uh, the fairmount park organic recycling center which is a center that was originally made to compost all the, the leaves from the city's leaf collection program in our city. Uh, on any given year it, it recycles somewhere between five and six thousand tons of material and that's our inputs are like uh, herbivore manure from stables in the area, um, leaves from the city that, that makes it up uh, about 40 percent of the weight actually is just leaves but then it's also brush, um, logs whether that's from contractors or from our own city arborists um, sometimes it's just wood chips from debris that got shipped out there on site or or yard trimmings and grass and we turn that into some really top grade compost uh and single ground like wood chips and then double ground mulch and all and all and firewood as well and so in some amounts in small amounts that stuff is free to residents and then if you want to get bulk amount there there's a there's a fee per weight um uh sale that we do here but one thing if you guys again if any of you all run your own organics yards through your um uh, through your municipal government. I'd, I'd be curious to hear if you're having the same issue, but we, like a lot of cities, we've realized on the East Coast have been flooded with wood products. So we have so much brush, so much debris from storms that have happened over the last couple of years or trees that are aging out or trees that are getting killed by pests um, that we've, we've got a mountain of wood chips. And I literally mean like this thing is taller than your, you know, your two-story house uh, maybe, maybe nearing a three-story house, um, and someone asked how many yards it was, and I told them, like, maybe we should measure it in acres instead, you know, that's how much wood chips that we're (laughs) starting to build up, and a lot of it just has to do with that the market for wood chips is really low, with all those factors we talked about, like, you know, storms, pests, um, there's been a lot of trees and branches downed, and a lot, and every organics yard in the region is, you know, generating wood chips or mulch, and the value of it is sort of plummeting. So it's something that um, we, for the first time in a good long while, we did like a, a month or two this summer where we actually just said like, who wants wood chips? We'll actually send a truck and deliver it to your farm or to your, um, you know, your community organization or to your neighborhood park to try to get rid of it. And I think we delivered some five or 600 tons and you can barely tell that there was a mate in it. Um, but so that's, so to to try to address that, we've actually been working on this uh, urban wood project for a while. We actually got some funding this year from, um, uh, we got one of the tree vitalized community, community forestry management uh, grants to, and they basically uh, gave a, you know, or rather matched our funds to get uh, a team of consultants to come in and sort of analyze our local market um, and give us recommendations and sort of a a business plan on, on how to actually add, uh, dimensional lumber and, um, live slabs as, as something that we're actually generating. Um, and so we haven't actually, we haven't physically activated that, that project yet, but now we finally have sort of like a a roadmap for the first time in in a while. It's, you know, those are things that we've experimented with in the past. we Maybe once or twice a year, we'd bring in a, a local miller in the or, or sort of with a port, with a portable saw. Um, so sorry, a, a local sawyer with a portable uh, saw uh, in the region. has come out and you know, made to order, you know, boards or slabs for us. And we've been able to do really cool stuff with that, like make bookshelves for our rec centers. Um, we actually built a couple bridges in our watershed parks. Um, and so what we're trying to do is say, like this is proof of concept. Um, we can make this stuff on a larger scale, and uh, even outside of park projects we can we can sell this to local artisans or to um, or to businesses who want to make their own you know furniture uh, or even use it in our in our rebuild program, which is like a, you guys can look it up, but it's a long uh, term initiative to use the um uh, the beverage tax that we have here in Philadelphia to basically rehab some 61 rec centers and libraries across the, across the city. And so we're thinking like, is there a way that this local wood can play into that? You know, and, and I'm sure you guys can imagine how there's a lot of co-benefits there in terms of, you know, we save money and instead of procuring more materials, we're using stuff that we already generate in house. We're also saving money on the, on the uh, waste disposal of that wood. Um, uh, it's there's also uh, less you know emissions from vehicles taking that stuff out of the city um, so there's a lot of you know economic and environmental benefits to that and even probably some we're also looking at how there's opportunity to weave workforce development into it so that you're actually training people to work with wood and, and sort, sort of learn some some craft or forestry skills by doing this program so that's one thing that that we're really excited to start to take on and build over the next uh, couple years sort of the crossroads at right now is can we afford um can we afford the investments to get the the people and the equipment that'll be able that'll allow us to run that um you know within our yard especially with any and everything happening with the economy, you know, these days, or do we need to instead look another direction and look into a a public-private partnership where we have someone come in and, you know, cohabit the, uh, cohabitate the yard with us and specifically to run the, um, that urban wood piece. Um, The proof of concept for that of why we think there's a little bit of appetite for that right now is some of you all might have heard that um, just this fall uh, actually officially at the beginning of last month, we did launch a public-private partnership with a local compost business called Bennett Compost. So it's one of our like small scale, urban you know, mom and pop shop kind of compost organizations. And for, and for the first time um, that our city has done this, and we think the first time that anyone in Pennsylvania has done this, um, we entered a public-private partnership with them where they uh, basically took over one of our maintenance facilities um, and they're going to run their small scale compost, uh, food composting business out of that. Um, and I know there's other compost partnerships across the the state, but they, this is specifically an urban small scale one. So it's on about 0.6 acres worth of space um we've got a nice deal with them where they're going to operate under our permit they're going to use our land they're going to use our utilities free of charge in exchange they have to collect food scraps from all of our rec centers free of charge and provide us with a portion of that finished compost at the end of the year so we think it's a really cool innovative sort of zero waste based um uh partnership um we're we're still uh waiting on the sort of the final word on our, our permit that we've been working back and forth with the DEP on to get that approved for that for that particular space and we need to hear from them if there's any particular site modifications we need to make Um, but we've been lining all the other pieces up um, and we're, we're excited to get this going and one of the one of the neat things about that is we went into this knowing that this is sort of a unique new thing and we're hoping that it can inspire replication, where we have more of these small-scale mom-and-pop compost shops across the city, and that we can, and that we can make it easier for other cities across the state um, to apply for that same type of permit. Um, you know, as we kind of figure out what are the modifications you need, what are the considerations you need to make this work in a more dense urban area, um, and so it could be. So we're basically exploring a different way to to handle waste in the in a dense city, um, specifically around organics. Um, the other, so that, that was a big one we're proud of. Uh, some of the other challenges we're having, one is around stormwater maintenance. A lot of you all might know that we here in Philadelphia really embrace the Green City Clean Waters uh, initiative really hard and our, our water department has been building uh, green stormwater infrastructure uh, all around the city. In Parks and Rec, we we both, Host a lot of their their sites, like a lot of their rain gardens or their 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 basins, um, or their tree trenches are are um, are on our land, and there's sort of an agreement where we have some open land, so we work with them to have them constructed on our land, and then the water department maintains them. But a lot of folks don't realize there's actually a growing inventory of uh, stormwater management practices that we as PPR had to install. You know whether we were doing renovations or were somehow triggering some kind of um, or uh, basically triggering the stormwater uh, regs to to have to, to create some stormwater maintenance. So we have something like low hundreds, maybe 120 uh, green stormwater infrastructure, uh, SMPs or BMPs, whatever you wanna call them, across our system. Uh, about half of those are, are really strictly like vegetated. You know, they're what you imagine when you see a rain garden. Some of them you might not realize because they're like pervious pavement or pervious asphalt, but at least, half of them you know around 60 are vegetated ones Um, we started to realize this this just recently has grown out of the scope of what our regular maintenance is you know where you need a a specific crew to do this and a really tough thing was on march i think it was march 8th we launched the first purely stormwater maintenance crew uh, for parks and rec and we just started to train them on how to whether it was cleaning out regular uh, gray stormwater drains in our system or in our parks and rec centers, uh, or cleaning out gutters through our watershed parks, or or actually going into rain gardens and doing maintenance and horticultural landscaping work on that. Uh, And as you guys know, about eight days later, our city got shut down and, you know, folks got sent home. Uh, And with a lot of budget cuts and those issues I was telling you before about being short-staffed, we had to dissolve that crew just as soon as we had started it. And so that is a bummer for me because we worked a long time on getting them set up, but on the bright side, the blueprint is there. And once we can, you know, get back on our feet and actually get the proper staff you know, back and able to stay and work, um, I'm looking forward to launching that that crew again. On um, me, I, I know I've taken up a bunch of your time, Brian. I'm, I'm gonna cut one or two things out and just... Uh, and just finish off with two things that specifically because I'm really curious to hear how other folks are handling this um, one one thing that we're starting to explore right now part of our budget cuts included losing a lot of money that we would have spent on our mowing contract right so our turf maintenance um, and this is for a city of our size and a system of our size where we manage some twelve thousand acres of property and you know not all of that's turf but that's you know that's our that's our property footprint um, we are short lots of money for for turf management. Um, one of the ways that we're sort of responding to that uh, is just having to cut cycles off. so we had to sh- we had to cut the last two cycles, which is basically a month worth of mowing of all of our grass in the city. as you can as I'm sure all you all can guess, neighbors are not happy about that in different neighborhoods. We're probably going to have to cut off more cycles in the spring just to stretch that budget out. Um, what it has opened is sort of An opportunity for a discussion where we're talking about um seriously talking about should we look at some of these areas to permanently convert from turf to meadow um and and that's one and i wanted to bring that up because i'm really curious if any of you all have done this and what resources you used or any kind of success you had Uh, we've narrowed it down to looking specifically at our watershed parks because we we just know we don't have the capacity to get into a fight with any neighborhood that's like, oh, this is my park across the street. You can't, you know, change up my dog walking spot. And we understand that that that's tough to do. It changes the dynamic of a public space in a neighborhood. But in watershed parks, there's a lot of opportunity where we we just have passive space that we're mowing to make it look like a nice tree alley. But really, you could get more environmental impact and more co- ongoing cost savings from turning that into a into a a meadow and also some stormwater benefits and um, got some, we're thinking of some creative ways to actually use meadows to activate spaces that are passive right now. Um, So I am curious if anyone else has done something like that or is looking at the same thing. Um, And I think the final thing I'll, I'll throw in here that we're dealing with is I said this year was supposed to be a big year of (laughs) taking steps forward. We were supposed to have completed a, uh, worked with a consultant to complete a, you know, really long-term Strategic plan around operations and maintenance, um, and it was going to involve so many, you know, on the ground visits and walkthroughs and interviews and stuff. And we just we had to basically postpone that, and we got we got approval to stretch those funds to um, to later next year. Um, but um, you know, in just trying to keep the momentum moving forward, a team of us did say. A critical thing we need to address as soon as possible is our, our natural resources or our natural lands. Um, you know, I told you we have, we oversee 12,000 acres worth of land. Uh, between five and six thousand of that is all of our natural lands. That's our watershed parks, meadows, creeks, streams, uh, forests, trails. Um, and it, as, as we are a parks and recreation department, um, a lot of our resources, we realized in recent years, start to tilt towards um, the rec centers. And I'm, I'm sure some of you all can relate to that. And a lot of it has to do with there's there's more like daily active users in a lot of those rec centers. Um, there, there's more programming around it. It's easier to miss some of the deficiencies in your natural lands world. So uh, a team of us just put together uh, A strategy sort of a a plan and a proposal to launch a whole new division of our of our department which we think we think that natural lands can't just be tucked under operations um it can't even just be tucked under capital work it really deserves its own team with its own uh you know director or deputy commissioner level senior level staffer um and that over time you know and this is like step by step over years it needs to build out its own its own, uh, you know, manager positions, a horticulturist for which we haven't had a horticulturist for, for some, for many years, um, but someone who can focus on that work, um, and its own maintenance crews who just do trail work and and natural lands management. Um, and so we, and we actually have a pit, we actually are pitching this to our commissioner, um, and given the whole, you know, all the details next week. So, you know, wish us luck on that. Um, but Brian that is that is the scope of <laughs> of the stuff that's on my table right now or at least a good amount of it. Thanks for everyone for listening through all that.
0: Well those are some great examples and actually you shared some slides with me that I'll share with everyone uh, after the event here but some of my initial thoughts are we we did invite natural lands as well as the wildlands conservancy to have a, a discussion with us about meadow establishment and uh they're right there in your neighborhood and one of the examples actually upper dublin which is just a little bit north of you guys uh has gone through those projects and so i'd first recommend just reaching out to some of those communities even right there in your backyard um as examples to see they're not as large of a scale i mean i'm kind of amazed the amount of acreage that you're talking about here but um if you think of it as scalable projects and just taking it piece by piece, um, you can look back at our previous event. Uh, Gary Gimbert from Natural Lands actually had some; would be a great resource for you. Um, and you can also. Uh, I'm just wondering here, anyone else in the audience? Is there some folks that have gone through the projects of uh, meadow establishment and/or at least looking at the feasibility of it? Because I know in some of the the research that I've done, I've seen the, uh, the good ways to do it and the ways that necessarily weren't the best approach because they thought that was the answer and it wasn't what the community wanted and they end up having to do more work to go and reestablish parkland as opposed to you know go, going from Meadowland into parkland became even a bigger practice and challenge. But I'd love to hear from anyone here that uh, would be willing to share some insights.
2: So I, I at, in Northbrook, Illinois, and uh, a lot of my time was in at, at the golf course. But I also managed the uh, the grounds area, and uh, specifically at the golf course, we've worked on the process of taking out of uh, play areas uh, specific to uh, stream banks uh, and uh, pond banks and naturalize them. Um, but exactly what you said, BK. I, I think the the key really is. To know that it's not a no-maintenance area, uh, it's actually a, a pretty intense maintenance for the first three to four years. Now, after that, uh, absolutely, it does tend to take care of itself, but you still have to get in there two, three times a year and and get in get the invasives out of there. Um, but yeah, it, it does it does lessen over time, but uh, you need to go into it with the with the thought of it is going to be high maintenance. Uh, for the first initial three, three years specifically. Um, but it, it is a great process. It turns out great when you do it right. Um, when you don't, like you said, it, it, it gets away from you. And then people just say, just mow it, just mow it. And then you're back to square one and you did all that work. Uh, it can get a little expensive with seed or with plugs or whatever you choose to, to do, but um, it's definitely worth it if you do it right.
0: And did you start with a seed company or how did you kind of start that project there, Mark? I mean, who, who were your experts that you leaned on to help see that process through to make it a success?
2: So the, the golf courses, I, I, I've kind of taken on a lot, uh, learned a lot on my own, but the golf courses have a lot of great resources through Autobahn International there's a a cooperative sanctuary program through them and they uh, are willing to share all the information that they have as far as resources and guidelines Uh, but then also reaching out to members of the community we have numerous um one of them specifically uh is uh they're they're called go green I, i don't know if they're in every community but i know some communities do have them um, they're very interested and in, in, in volunteer for that. Um, they help with resources and, uh, in some cases, labor, but it's not always the, the best labor. Um, but really, it's just, you know, how do you start? And, and what are the processes that you do to, to make it happen? And you have to figure that out. What resources do you have? Um, so I, I, I leaned on Autobahn International and a lot of internet research to get started, and uh, found the best seed that I, I thought was going to have the best chance, uh, and it, and it worked out great. Um, I also I guess cheated a little bit. Uh, two or three of our areas um, were done by contractors, and I simply just watched what they did. <laughs> uh, I watched I watched them day after day I asked them questions they were more than willing to share their expertise and once I realized that uh hey this isn't anything more than my staff can do especially uh in October November as things start to wind down um we can we can get in there and, and make some of that stuff happen and that's exactly what we did so we turned um the first three phases were probably a total of um uh, oh, I'm just kind of making up numbers here maybe but uh maybe around $200,000 was the first three phases, three years. So we did, uh, in those three years, probably a total of four to five acres of uh, pond restoration, which including uh, taking all the erosion and, and, and creating slopes on the, on the ponds and then uh, regrading them and, and seeding them and um, that was that was the difficult part because it involved some some equipment, but once it came to planting and seeding and plugging where necessary, it was easy for our staff to do. So we we spent about two hundred thousand dollars with a contractor due to those to do those first initial phases. And like I said, once I picked their brains and, and learned what they did, uh, we were able to take it on uh, in house and you know, an acre of seed is probably about two grand. So um, you see that most of the cost is in maintenance. And for us, it's prevailing wage maintenance. So that triples it. And uh, if you just start doing things in-house, it becomes a lot cheaper. Thank you. I know here in Pennsylvania, you
0: have the Penn State Extension and I know most states across the country you know, I've found that the best research you're going to find is when you use a .edu as opposed to a .com because you're going to get more uh unbiased opinions but also then you have a, a good reach like for example i'm taking the master gardener program through the extension and so there is an entire volunteer pool of using your master gardeners and those are people that are looking for things to do on a cons, you know consistent basis right there in philadelphia you also have the uh pennsylvania horticultural society say you're looking for a horticulturist but there's another you know nonprofit organization that is looking for those kind of tree vitalizes through them so those are some great resources there and i'm sure that you can do that methodology across the country looking at what is your local university who is the you know either agricultural scientists or the geologists or you know the experts that you need and start tapping into them now whether or not they have the bandwidth to work with you is another discussion but it never hurts to ask I and mean, that's all that I've been doing for the past years looking for people that are willing to talk and help and share their expertise. Um, a question I have for everyone in a sense and uh, I wanna introduce another, speaking of universities, uh, I asked Cynthia Rabbers from Penn State University who's just around the corner from me that runs their uh, Stone Valley, which is uh, I would say a multi-use area. It's a land grant school, um, but they have a camp facility. They have a uh, a park, for lack of a better term, because there is a lot of acreage out there as well, with lots of trails and all sorts of different kind of operations and management issues. And I just asked her if she would share some of her insights on uh, what it takes to maintain such a a large facility but such a multiple aspect of stakeholders and we talked about multiple neighborhoods and things in philadelphia obviously but you also have uh, a place like stone valley that is a destination for people in this local area
3: yeah thank you um so i'm cynthia i am uh, the assistant director for campus recreation and so my responsibility is overall management of stone valley Um, So underneath me, I have two maintenance staff, one who's mainly janitorial and um, lawn mowing, and one who is general maintenance um, of our facilities. Um, Really interesting, when I came on um, January of 2018, the maintenance staff person was also replaced at that about the same time the previous one had retired. Um, So we had both of us brand new coming in, um, and there weren't a lot of records on like, what needed done and all of that fun stuff. Um, campus recreation is a fairly new department at the university, everything recreation-wise previously had been under athletics. Um, so there wasn't a lot of you know, stuff from that transition either. Um, so we essentially have been building everything in our maintenance program from the ground up, um, from the start, figuring out, you know, okay, what's our responsibility? Um, Because we're part of the university, there are things at Stone Valley that we are not allowed to touch. We are not allowed to touch the furnace. Um, So if we need any furnace work done, we have to get um, university maintenance to come out. Um, There's some things that are, you know, technical maintenance stuff that are outside of my maintenance person's skills, Um, so we call the university for those. those are oftentimes long projects so we have a hot water heater that's been broken for at least a month and a half now because of the university process so we called them they came out they checked it they're like yeah it's broken it needs to be replaced all right great replace it so a couple weeks later i got an email hey here's the cost for your new water heater i need you guys to approve it and then i need you to put in another work order for it Um, so for every piece of work that we do, I need to put in essentially two work orders, unless it's like a simple, a pipe is broken and they can just fix it real quick. Um, but anything major, I have to put in two work orders before it actually can go through the whole university process. Um, I I have the lucky ability to be able to bring in some student staff to help us out in the summertime. Um, so I actually have three student staff that will work with us in the summer, um, doing landscaping and things like that. So that is also helpful. But uh, another one of our challenges does come in with the multiple stakeholders. Um, So when Stone Valley was originally created, it was underneath an academic department and they were essentially, you know, uh, research and class oriented, but open to the public. Um, So there weren't really any type of restrictions or anything like that. Eventually, the academic department didn't wanna have a recreation facility under them anymore. So uh, the recreation area got moved over to athletics. Um, They moved everything out of athletics that was just recreation. So athletics is just athletics and recreation can be its own thing. And that put us under student affairs. Um, So student affairs is heavily student oriented. Everything within our department has to be student oriented. So that changed the model out at Stone Valley drastically from what it was previously. Um, And that has been a struggle for us, Um, not only because it looks different, like when people come, when people rent a cabin, it looks different, but it also looks different from a pricing scheme. So the previous pricing scheme, there was a price um, if you were just a general person, and then there was a price if you were um, anything, anybody. Uh, affiliated with Penn State or senior citizens. Um, When we had to redo that pricing scheme, we had to redo it along um, the lines of our department. So our department pricing scheme would be students and then um, university departments and then um, campus recreation members and then the general public. But it got rid of the senior citizens, it got rid of the um, faculty staff Discounts unless they were a campus recreation member. Um, so when that pricing got rolled out, and that was um, almost exactly two years ago now, um, we had a lot of pushback, especially from those um, previous community members that were used to getting those discounts, whether it was for boating or for you know our our large CE lodge over on the other side of the lake, um, which is kind of a a camp-like facility Um, so it has a big meeting building it has little cabins Um, it used to be used for um, shavers creek which is the environmental center next to us their camp programs um, their camp programs got too big for that facility so they had to move them somewhere else Um, but like lots of lots of different things like coming in there and for me i came from a park background Um, not a campus recreation background. So there was that learning curve of figuring out, well, okay, so how do I take what I know from, you know, working with people and help them understand the structure that we have here. Um, So
0: So in that transition, what sort of tools or what what sort of um, what do you do to organize? Because maintenance has to happen, and maybe student activities isn't going to necessarily understand the fact that grass grows whether or not students are there, and things break whether or not people are using them because the sun kills it, you know? And so, how do you uh, keep track of the amount of time it takes to maintain specific things just for daily operations versus? activity operations do you have any sort of methodologies or specific resources that you do to kind of justify?
3: So the really nice thing was that because we didn't it, we essentially we didn't know anything um, when I arrived um, and so like I said we were building it all from the ground up um, so we really got a lot of leeway a lot of leeway that I don't think you would normally get um, as far as maintenance goes So like, we created lists of, you know, this is everything that is broken, that no longer works. This is everything that is on the list of things that we're supposed to have that aren't here, that we need. Um, These are the things that would make our job a little bit easier if we had this, this, or this. Um, And we essentially, we submitted that list up the leadership chain in campus recreation. And we said, this is what we need. This is why we need it. Can we please have it? Um, And essentially, everything that we had on the list, we were told yes, yes, yes. Um, And then usually at the end of every fiscal year, so the university is the July to June fiscal years. um, If facilities and operations as a whole has money that hasn't been used within their budget, um, all of the facilities submit lists again of, hey, you know this would be something really cool to have. Not necessarily something that like we absolutely, absolutely need, but that would help us. Um, and so we were able to get things that way as well. Um, campus recreation, a lot of the budget that we have comes from student fees. Um, so shortly after campus recreation was formed, the students actually voted that they will add like $59 a semester to their tuition bills in order to um, fund the budget of campus recreation Um, so that gives us a little bit more leeway than some of the other departments may have um, because those are guaranteed funds like we always know every year no matter what the university allotment is we'll have those funds coming um, into us Um, and those make up the vast vast majority of our budget
0: right on so that's your tax revenue if you would be a municipality yeah. at that point yeah daniel what you said that most the funding is coming from the the booze tax for lack of a better term um it, is that necessarily the case or like how do you track and justify needs especially since you are looking at some um well all of us are going to be looking at budgets getting shrunk and so we're all going to be in this situation where we need to start um collecting data and showing our value showing our return on investment justifying positions you know and it's not as simple as just saying well if there's no one there to mow the grass it's just going to continue to grow so like what kind of tools do you use to uh communicate that to the powers that be right
1: those are some good questions i do want to clarify one thing so the that funding (laughs) That sh- that beverage tax isn't a booze tax it's a sugary beverage tax so it's actually a soda tax which is even more of a you know That's more, of a, more of a sacrilege here <laughs> in uh in philadelphia um but and and i do want to cl- clarify that that tax is going towards specifically towards the rebuild initiative which is this like and it even has an office that's kind of like a, a sister department to our department, but it's, it's sort of separate, it's like an office completely made of folks working on large scale capital projects that are like renovations of these rec centers, and, you know, upward, like multi, like six figure renovation kind of projects and stuff to take, you know, pretty, for lack of a better term, dilapidated rec centers and sort of redo them. Um, for our for our regular sort of day-to-day week to week programs and operations um you know in parks and rec, uh we a lot of our stats and I'm I'm sure it's I'm sure a lot of your departments, especially if you all are are, are you know, being in this um round table or in the maintenance or operations world, a lot of our stats that we report on to city council are all around programming. And it's a tough thing. I mean I, I don't. I don't need to lament <laughs> to you guys. You know, the, like oh, it's a tough life living in the operations world. But it is true that you know I've seen what our our reporting metrics are, and it is like number of users, number of youth enrolled in our programs, um, you know, attendees to events, or like permits sold for events and things like that. Uh, and and I want to say there's to every. Five or six program related metrics we're reporting to council on there'll be one maybe two of them that are for operations and it'll be like number of like ball fields maintained or or like acres mode <laughs> or, or something like that um so and and that is all to say that I think naturally in op in operations and I, again i I would imagine most places are facing this, but those operations dollars are, are hard to come by. Um, it It's hard for us to justify, it becomes hard for us to justify large amounts of money being being invested into our stuff. Like we're, I think on an average year, it's at the level where you have to decide, like, do we want to replace a trash truck that's breaking down or get a new, like two new maintenance people for this district, you know, because we can't, we're not going to get both of those. Um, And um, a a lot of that is sort of what's, what's driving. I, I have fun with this type of work, but a lot of that is sort of what's driving me to try to help our department out by thinking of like, what are some ways we can actually save funds? Like if we, Um, We did some calculation where we were like, if we turned all of this passive space, that's not being programmed anyway into meadow instead of, um, you know, know, instead of just mowing it every two weeks. Um, We definitely recognize, as Mark said earlier, that it's going to cost some money to get there. But we, we've, I've been trying to think creatively of like, it's going to cost some money, but there's more resources out there, whether it's from the DCNR or like you were saying, PHS or some, you know, to, to support us doing something like that and improves the ecosystem um no one's going to give us extra money to like mow the lawn you know mow the grass more um so we're hoping someone can invest to help us make that sort of initial change uh and then and then that investment can ideally can save us money over time or or like the urban wood project is another another example of of a way we're trying to get creative of like right now this is a problem for us that we're taking on the city's wood waste and we're running out of uh ways to to process it you know and it's actually becoming a liability in a a lot of ways if any of you guys ever worked in or otherwise run a like a um an organics yard (laughs) there's a lot of liability with building up material that's not going anywhere um but that's an area where we're looking like well how can we turn this around and actually make it an asset can we raise the value of of wood by just making better wood projects or sorry products and can we use that revenue to then uh, to fund some of our maintenance needs, you know, like, um, like some of our operations needs, uh, Man, I went all over the place with that. Did I? I think I feel like I missed a part of your question there.
0: Uh, that that <laughs> it just brought up some good points, though. DCNR, one of their best kept secrets, in my opinion, is they did spend the time and money to develop a mowing calculator that it actually can uh you plug in how much mowing is taken and it takes in the amount of gas used the cost of gas all of these things and then it can spit out a number for you that shows you the cost differences of mowing amount of acreage versus not mowing amount of acreage and so i mean that that's at least some data that you can use to show decision makers uh you make a very good point that in operations I found that we are very reactive uh, as opposed to proactive in justifying our own jobs. I mean we know what we do, we know what we have to do, we know what we do well and we know what we don't want to do, but we know what we don't want to do is one of the things that we need to do is keeping track of how much time is used and trying to be most efficient about the time and operations and so I, i'd open this up to everyone in the that's still on with us is what sort of tools are you is it a spreadsheet um are you just writing it down on paper is it in your head it's, what can we do to start calculating the amount of work that we do, and where can we find the gaps in the efficiencies? I know I spoke with uh, Joel McKnight, who's down in El Paso, Texas, and we had a great conversation for a while. And one of the points that he brought up is first, they're lucky because uh, they're part of a park district area where they are able to add a tax to have some of their funding and things. But along with that is they keep track of every type of data possible. And then they go through every few years and they re-look at the, the strategy of what data are we measuring and what where can we improve that's gonna save us the most. And one of the things was just windshield time, the amount of time that it takes for people to get from job to job. Um, and then all of a sudden you can justify since you're covering such a large area, well, it makes more sense to put an operations office in that neighborhood and then staff it than it does to keep them down there at headquarters and they're spending an hour and a half driving each way across town in traffic. And so they're not even getting the job done. So you're paying somebody three hours to sit in a vehicle. That's a huge inefficiency. And so that's something that comes out of keeping track of those kind of things. And so is there anyone out there that would really uh, share with us what you are measuring or how do you measure it? must be a really deep question.
1: (laughs) Well, VK, you did make me think, realize that there was something I didn't answer in your question as, as you were, as you were talking that I totally agree with you that we're, it's easy for operations to be reactive. And I, you know, myself and a lot of my colleagues, I think, believe that. And I think it's especially easy to be reactive rather than proactive when you're on a tight budget. And it's sort of like a, it's sort of like a, it's sort of like a vicious cycle of, especially like the way our, you know, to go back to your question about funding, um, already Parks and Rec, there's like some, there's some like nice, or not nice, but terrible pie chart that shows you how much uh health and safety you know gets of our city budget and it's like 75 percent of our budget is to like you know police fire emergency services and then there's a bunch of departments in between and like less than one percent it's like an invisible line on the pie chart you know is parks and rec uh and people are like how do you guys do anything and a lot of it has to do with that we have our own operating budget um and if there's sort of extra special projects we want to do we can get funding from the discretionary funds of a council member in their district. So that does make our, pro- that does make the way we operate inherently. There's no way to get around that. It, it's, it's going to be somewhat political. And then it's like, all right, in order to get funding for this, like that. Well, you know, it's those council people's jobs to use that discretionary budget to to meet the needs of their constituents. But that often will drive us towards like, we may think it's more important to address this, like mowing issue or this tree issue in this district. And we might have data to back that up, but what will often win out in that sort of dynamic is like, ah, but this council member drives by this particular lot every day and wants it to look really nice and neat and clean and like mowed. So let's, you know, we're gonna have to funnel more resources there in order to meet the the need of that district. So I am totally, hearing what you're saying and agreeing with you that we don't we don't want to be reactive and um, you know I love data and try to collect all you know I have spreadsheets of like where is all of the illegal dumping in our city happening here's a map that shows you like, like a heat map that shows you where all the hot spots are or like the frequency of like dumping but some of the hottest spots like we talked about earlier are not on like the major roadway you know <laughs> that that fo- that folks are going to drive through when they're coming downtown. So it's kind of it can be easily become like an out of sight, out of mind thing. And I think that's one of the the issues that we're trying to figure out. Like, how do we fight that? You know, how do we advocate for funding for something that people can't really see because it's not affecting them on a on a daily basis, or they're not hearing constituents kind of nagging about it on a weekly basis.
0: Well, and that brings a very good point for closing for this uh, because we're coming up on our time here, but we have to be our own advocates. And so that's one thing that, you know, it is a great point that bringing those council members, bringing those administrators, even in smaller municipalities and making them realize that finding out what is important to them and we're willing to work with them, but also educating them on what is needed because sometimes what they want isn't necessarily exactly what is needed at the time because they may not know any different. Uh, I learn every single day. So as we move forward, I invite you, please check out the Institute website. We, uh, we have moved to our subscription area now. And so we need to survive too. Um, but uh, if you have not been there, please check it out. Get in touch with me and let's share resources. Let's uh, talk about what you need and help me help you because that's what I am here for and that's hey, not B- just for Pennsylvania.
2: BK, I might be Johnny coming lately here. Um, oh, but go ahead, Dan. Just real quick, I worked for Wildlife ha- uh, wild, the Wildlife Habitat Council uh, in years past and then there's the National Wildlife Federation they both have uh, programs about meadow planning and they can get you some kind of visibility um, for your actions. So, you know, it's that's another, it's an additional thing you can do to kind of spice up your project and make it valuable to the public.
0: That's a great point. Yeah, the, the more that we look at partnerships and other organizations that are willing to work with us especially when you look at it on a social media aspect, the more engagements you have, the better view you get and it creates further reach. So I wanna thank everyone for your time. I wanna thank Cynthia uh, and Daniel for taking the time out of their day, but also uh, sharing some insights with us and sharing your experiences because it is helpful for everyone here. Um, We'll see you again next month i will be focusing a little bit on seasonal aspects so i'm going to try to pull a panel together talking about what are we going to be doing for the holiday season as well as getting ready for winter Uh, so i'm pulling on some folks up in minneapolis so if you want to think snow you're going to learn from them but i'm also going to pull some from folks uh, hopefully from california and florida so we can get some of that warm weather things and see where is our common rubs as we get into this uh everybody wants their families to get out and do things but we're being told we can't so what can we do uh thank you again
2: and uh be well